Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from past week here at Monaco 24. This week, we'll look back at Mikhail Gorbachev's life. It is impossible to know what credit Mikhail Gorbachev is ultimately owed. We don't know how bad, how chaotic the collapse of the Soviet Union could have been. But Mikhail Gorbachev was a major reason why we never found out. Plus, our film expert Karen Krizanovich reports from the Venice Film Festival. It was a great opening night. This is my first Venice Film Festival. It's just as glamorous as can, but slightly more relaxed, slightly less well-organized, but a lot more fun. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last ever head of the Soviet Union, has died at the age of 91 this week. The former Soviet leader died after suffering a severe and prolonged illness. To look back on the life of the man who took down the Iron Curtain, here is Andrew Muller. There was never any guarantee that the collapse of the Soviet Union would be, relatively and all things considered, as orderly and peaceful as it was. There was never any guarantee, indeed, that the collapse of the Soviet Union wouldn't be like the collapse of Yugoslavia, but with ten times the people, at least that multiple of ethnic and religious divisions, any amount more weaponry and a nuclear arsenal of possibly uncertain governance. So there are many reasons to be grateful that the last occupant of the post of General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union happened to be Mikhail Gorbachev, and not one of the doer, belligerent, uncomprehending dinosaurs who immediately preceded him. Mikhail Sakaevich Gorbachev was born on March 2, 1931, in rural poverty and obscurity in Stavropol Krai in Russia's perpetually restless North Caucasus. His upbringing was so stereotypically Soviet as to verge on the kitsch. His father, a Red Army veteran turned combine harvester driver, his mother a worker on a collective farm. The young Gorbachev embraced the Soviet ideal and the controls of his father's farm machine with gusto. He became active in the Komsomol, the Communist Party's youth wing, and after graduating from the University of Moscow in the Communist Party itself. Gorbachev's arrival on the world stage in 1985 was sudden. Indeed, his designation as General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and therefore leader of the USSR was the first that many people had heard of him. Another Soviet leader who was too old and too sick when he took power to hold on to it has died. And now a 54-year-old has taken over, someone who theoretically at least will be around for a generation. Get used to the name, Mikhail Gorbachev. According to at least normal life expectancy, Gorbachev should have plenty of time to put his mark on Soviet affairs. Gorbachev followed a succession of three old men, Leonid Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov and Konstantin Chernyenko, who had died within the previous three years, an irresistible representation of the decadence of the regime they led. All had radiated the approximate approachability and general joie de vivre of people who'd spent a long day queuing in the snow for turnips. Gorbachev was only 54 and affable, agreeable, amenable, able to win over Western leaders not hitherto known for a willingness to compromise with Moscow. I like Mr Gorbachev, said British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. We can do business together. 
We both believe in our own political systems. He firmly believes in his. I firmly believe in mine. We're never going to change one another. When US President Ronald Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin in 1987 and said, Mr Gorbachev, tear down this wall, he had at least an inkling of a sympathetic interlocutor. The pair had met previously in Reykjavik and gotten on quite well, all things considered. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace... If you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. The two buzzwords of Gorbachev's rule were glasnost, or openness, and perestroika, or restructuring. His acknowledgement that the Soviet Union was no longer viable was admirable. His insistence that it could be saved, or was worth saving, perhaps less so. In October 1990, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts at reform. Three months later, he dispatched Red Army tanks to Vilnius in a foolish and futile attempt to thwart Lithuania's reassertion of its independence. Fourteen civilians were killed and hundreds injured. In March 1990, Gorbachev became the first Soviet leader formally entitled president. He would also be the last. In August 1991, he saw off a coup attempt, but by then it was clear that the collapse of the Soviet Union and of Soviet communism had acquired a momentum which no amount of tinkering could halt. He resigned on Christmas Day 1991. Later that night, the scarlet standard flying over the Kremlin was hauled down for the last time. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. In politics, right as in life Mr. in general, there are few things harder to admit to oneself or to others that the game is up. In truth, the Soviet Union had lost the argument when Gorbachev was barely in his 30s. The moment you have to erect walls and watchtowers to stop your population from leaving is the moment at which you've acknowledged that your ideology has fatal defects. But in politics, as in life in general, sunk costs are a fearful hazard, and Gorbachev well understood that tens of millions had died for the Soviet ideal, not all of them voluntarily. The decoupling of the hammer and sickle was always going to be received more ambiguously at home than abroad. Many of Mikhail Gorbachev's fellow Russians never forgave him. The Soviet Union may have been one of the most monstrous apparatuses of oppression ever assembled, but for those it did not crush, it furnished some certainty and no little pride. When Gorbachev ran for president of a newly democratic-ish Russia in 1996, he polled 0.5% of the vote. His decades past power were spent being ignored by Russians and lionised by everyone else, up to and including doing a cameo in a Vim Vendors film and shilling for Pizza Hut. It is impossible to know what credit Mikhail Gorbachev is ultimately owed. We don't know how bad, how chaotic the collapse of the Soviet Union could have been. But Mikhail Gorbachev was a major reason why we never found out. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And now we look back at Gorbachev's legacy. Here is Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor Stephen Diel. Stephen interviewed Gorbachev three times between 1992 and 1995. They were very interesting. The most interesting thing, perhaps, being that each time he learned to discuss more. 
the first time was really almost like a lecture. I spent two hours with him and I kept trying to stop him. And he just put his hand up to, to, to indicate, don't, don't speak to me now. And he just carried on. Um, so it was interesting. He was very polite, I have to say that, and, and, and friendly enough. But he just, you know, he, he had his points to make. But by the last time, um, I think uh, I, I did say 95. I, I think it must have, it was actually 96. I think it was when he was running for president. And we had a really good conversation. He really believed that the, the, that the Soviet Union needed reforming, had needed reforming by then, of course. What, and he also said this to me, what he never intended to do was end the Soviet Union. He started by hoping to speed up the system. Lots of people know the words pedestoika and glasnost, but there was one that came before it shortly after Dukovo, which was uskarienia, which means acceleration or speeding up. He thought if we work better, if we speed things up, it would work. And that staggered on for a few months. And really the Chernobyl disaster in April uh, 1986 put an end to that. He realized then just how bad things were and how sloppy work practices and, and all sorts of other things. And that's when we, 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 we then start hearing about pedestroika. We need to dismantle certain things and, and, and rebuild them. And he then realized you can't do that unless you admit to mistakes. And that's what glasnost was about. That's what openness was about, which had never been the case in the Soviet Union. Lies had been to the fore and uncomfortable truths had been hidden away. Thank you, Stephen. And now, for a contrary, more sceptical view of Gorbachev's legacy, let's hear now from Prit Hobmaj. He's the editor-in-chief of the Tallinn and Estonia-based newspaper Postimes. I saw Mikhail Gorbachev with my own eyes in February 1987. He was speaking to youth organizations about Communist Party propaganda in the lecture hall of a big, grey, ugly building, next to the local Communist Party headquarters. Rising to the lectern, he said, Welcome, young communists of Riga, capital of Latvia. Except it wasn't Riga. And it wasn't Latvia. It was Tallinn, Estonia. This blunder was characteristic of Gorbachev. In a similar vein, the results of his actions were often very different from the original intentions. As Soviet watchers understood at the time, he wasn't on a mission to dissolve the Soviet Union. His buzzword, perestroika, means rebuilding. The goal was to rescue the Soviet Empire from the ruins left by previous leaders, but keep it intact. But he did it in such an incompetent way that the whole thing fell apart in his hands. The attempted coup against Gorbachev remains a mystery. Three half-drunk party hardliners announced a putsch and a halt to all reforms on Soviet state TV. I can't help but wonder whether Gorbachev himself was the playwright of this little drama. Perhaps he hoped the coup would turn back the clock on his own reforms, allowing order to be restored in the Soviet Union in spite of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It did not. I was one of the millions of people living under the umbrella of the Soviet Union at the time, watching on television the trembling hands of the generals, and I knew at that moment this putsch will collapse, the Soviet Union will collapse, and maybe... Estonia will have a chance to regain its independence. It did later that month. 
Gorbachev will be remembered internationally as the architect of a peaceful revolution. But that's not the view here in Estonia. Was he a good man? The answer is no. I believe Gorbachev was an evil man, as all the Soviet leaders before him. He rose to the top playing by the same rules as Stalin, Brezhnev and others and was determined to keep the despotic Soviet regime in place. But Gorbachev, he was just the klutz. Join Marco Sippi for the menu, bringing you Monocle 24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at 20.00 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Curator. We cross now to Pakistan, where a super flood has caused the death of over a thousand people. The scale of disaster is immense, and the number of casualties is rising. In the absence of state services, three prominent Pakistanis have come together to raise funds. One of those is Fatima Bhutto, the granddaughter of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, founder of the Pakistan People's Party and former prime minister and president of the country. Her father, Murtaza Bhutto, an elected member of parliament, was killed by the police in 1996 in Karachi during the premiership of his sister, Benazir Bhutto. Fatma is an award-winning writer and columnist. The scale is just enormous. A third of the country has been flooded. 35 million people have been internally displaced. The numbers in Pakistan are much higher. The official number is 35 million displaced, but it's probably as high as 50 million at this point. Um, More than a thousand dead, as you said. Um, Crops have been decimated. Um, uh, There's going to become, there's going to be hunger, there's going to be food shortages. There is stagnant flood water, which means that diseases are going to start rising and rising amongst the very poorest of the people who've been affected. Um, It's tens of thousands of homes destroyed, kilometers of roads. And it's not over yet. This is a super flood, as you said, and we're expecting more water, we're expecting more damage, and we're expecting more tragedy. How's the government dealing with it? Well, it depends where you're looking. In in Sindh, um, we have had incredibly corrupt government for the last 30 years. And not only have they absolutely robbed the province blind, but there is no disaster preparedness. There is no emergency services. There's barely functioning sewage and gutter systems. And so people are left to do um, what they can themselves through organizations, through NGOs, just being there on the roads, even in some cases. Mm. In terms of the larger government, there are relief efforts. Um, They're trying to evacuate people. They're trying to put people into camps so that they can be 
looked after, but the scale is enormous. And unfortunately, the world doesn't really seem to care. I mean, we saw when Notre Dame was on fire. In a matter of days, a billion dollars was raised. And, and yet Pakistan, which is um, one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world that emits, I mean, under a percent um, of carbon emissions, is really just left to itself. It's It's got no attention. It's got no help, really. Yeah. Now, you, your brother and, and one other came together. Why did you feel it was necessary to take this action? Well, me, my brother Zulfikar and our friend Minal Munshi came together because we come from the Sindh province, which is the worst affected in terms of the number um, of flood, flood affectees. It's not only that Sindh is at, at sea level, which means that the waters are going to rush downstream. We're expecting more damage to come. And we also know that if we leave it to the local government, nothing will happen. Um, the poor are just left invisible. So we're raising money for organizations working on the ground. The Edi Foundation, which is an enormous relief organization in Pakistan. We're raising money for the Legal Aid Society, which is giving immediate food rations to people. For the Child Life Foundation, which runs emergency care for children. And we're hoping also to give money to um, organizations that are going to do house rebuilding. Of course, they can't do the rebuilding because there's still water. We have to wait a few weeks or months for that. Mm. And um, we're giving the money directly to these organizations. We're doing all our accounting on our social media so people know what they're giving, where it's going to. Because this is not just a tragedy of today. This tragedy is going to unfold and last for many, many months to come. And worse than that, Georgina, you know, this is going to happen every summer. This is climate change. It's made monsoon rains more erratic, more terrifying. And Pakistan has, second to the polar regions, the largest number of glaciers in the world. And they're melting rapidly because of global heating. So this is not just a singular crisis. This mm. is going to be a developing crisis. Uh, now, I've been really impressed just looking at your at Indus Relief uh, 2022 on Instagram. You only launched, I think, yesterday. You've got to 75% of your target already. Part of that is that you're not just asking people to give money. You're also giving them something back. Tell us a little bit more about your auction and various things that you're offering in return for funds to help this crisis. Yes, we've got um, an amazing auction and we're auctioning artwork by prominent Pakistani artists. We've got film premieres in London. We've got VIP tickets to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, um, golf course <laughs> prizes, um, jewellery, signed books, um, bespoke cakes. Elizabeth Day has donated um, that she will name a character in her next novel. Um, to the person who wins that bid. So we're trying, really, we know people are exhausted um, and, you know, it's been one disaster after another. So we, we've got an auction running. There's loads of stuff um, in terms of London um, and then other things you can buy. And then we've got, separate to that, a series of masterclasses, which we're doing over Zoom with prominent writers. We just had Mohsen Hamid yesterday. Kamila Shamsi is doing a masterclass next week. Um, we've got some more exciting names coming up. We'll be doing those hopefully every week through this month. And then we've just got a GoFundMe page where people can give if they don't want to come to our classes or bid on things in the auction. But, you know, we're trying to raise awareness and we're also trying to 
give back to keep people entertained and interested while we do so. Mm. And that all comes under the heading of Indus Relief 2022. Yes, if you follow us on Instagram on Indus Relief 2022, you can see everything that we're rolling out. Um, on Twitter, I'm F Butto, um, and I'm also posting over there. So we've got new things coming all the time. And, and Fatima, just before you go, uh, given your tremendous political heritage, do you feel that this is perhaps your responsibility? Yes, I think it's the duty of any Pakistani. I think it's the duty, um, certainly, um, for me and my brother. You know, we're, we're, we're not just Pakistanis, but we're people who care deeply about climate change. And this is the terrifying future that, that global warming has given us. And if we don't act now, if we're not pushed into trying to do something, what do we do? What kind of future are we going to have to live in? To Latin America now, Chileans will decide whether to adopt a new constitution this Sunday in a nationwide referendum scheduled for September the 4th. Our Latin America Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott sent us this report from Santiago. Sunday will mark one of at least three occasions in recent years when Chileans have been asked to take to the polls. Only this time the vote is mandatory and what's at stake will have consequences that go far beyond a presidential term. The Andean nation is being asked whether to accept a new constitution. It's been drawn up over the past 12 months by a constituent assembly whose members were selected by the public at the height of the pandemic, on a relatively low turnout. The final draft puts environmental and indigenous rights at its centre, and broadly shifts power to the state when it comes to the provision of services across health, education and housing. It also guarantees gender parity in government, a regional first, by allocating an equal number of ministerial and state positions to men and women. Moves to rewrite Chile's current Magna Carta, which emphasises private property rights and dates back to the military dictatorship of General Pinochet, first gained momentum in late 2019. That Southern Hemisphere spring, millions took to the streets in widespread and at times violent protests to demand greater equality, including a young student activist and congressman, Gabriel Boric, who as of March this year is now president. Boric has staked much of his political capital on the project, and on Sunday, his left-wing government will be tested. If it's rejected, what is going to happen is that we are going to have to prolong this process for another year and a half, where we're going to have to discuss everything again from scratch. According to the latest polls, it looks to be an extremely tight race, with Chileans who reject the new constitution currently outnumbering those who support it. Critics complain that the assembly responsible for the redrafting is too radical to accurately represent Chilean society. Two-thirds of delegates were left-leaning, including some from the far left, whereas Congress is roughly evenly split between left and right. The current message coming from those who support the new draft is that those in doubt should accept the new text and then revise any subsequent articles. Perhaps more interesting is the current backdrop to which Chileans will vote, record inflation, a depreciating currency and rising levels of crime that could play a key role in voter sentiment on Zimbabwe. Más fuerte, hace frío, pero, 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 pero.
Questions have now turned to what happens if the public says no. Few can accept the idea that the current constitution from 1980 simply remains. The country voted overwhelmingly in favour of change barely two years ago, so there's really no going back. One option is to start the process all over again, leading to more years of uncertainty for the South American mining nation and questions over who the delegates will be, how long it will take and what happens in between. While some hope Sunday marks the end of a chapter in Chile's recent history, here in Santiago, it increasingly feels like the beginning of another. For Monocle 24, I'm Lucinda Elliott. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our highlights of the week here at Monaco 24. We have a lovely roundup of entertainment news. Anne is double-headed by Karen Krizanovic in Venice for the film festival. And in the studio is Matt Wolf, theater critic at the International New York Times. Venice is fabulous, very windy, but the gelato is great. <laughs> oh, hey, glad to hear it. Uh, we'll start, first of all, with, uh, with Matt, though, because uh, you've been taking in all sorts of stuff in terms of what's going on on Broadway. And something I noticed, and it can't be just unique to Broadway, I guess we're the same here in the West End a yeah. lot of the time, but you're right, it's, it's all musicals. Well, particularly at the, at the end of the summer, what happens in New York is everything is geared to the Tony Awards, which are in June, and then everything that loses the Tonys closes. So the only shows that really seem to have the muscle to kind of endure the summer are the big musical shows, because they attract the tourists, and also, like with Hugh Jackman and Billy Crystal, they have the stars. And you say in, in, in the notes that you, you sent over to me, Matt, you said there's only one play running and it's a so-so show already seen in London. Yeah, this was uh, an adaptation of the novel The Kite Runner that was done on the West End and it's on Broadway and it's, it's sort of, you know, ho-hum. I think uh, for plays, Broadway is marking time till October, November when the season really kicks into gear afresh. So now it's really kind of holding over the musicals and revving up for the new, the new round of things. And these musicals, they've got big hitting performances performers in them these yeah. days. I mean, you, you're highlighting Hugh Jackman being uh, the, the big hit in The Music Man, but let's say Billy Crystal. Yes, I mean, Billy Crystal was last on Broadway in 2005 in a one-man play called 700 Sundays, which he then adapted to... Oh, uh, I've read that book. Yeah, and um, this is actually uh, a musical, Mr. Saturday Night, based on a film of his from about 30 years ago uh, about a Which was a concert I remember. Well, it wasn't a hit in its day, and I'm afraid the musical is not a hit in its day either. Uh, it's finishing this coming weekend. Not in any way to speak disrespectfully Mr. Crystal, who's charming in it, who sings actually perfectly well, as we know from his Oscar hosting from way back when. But the show feels a bit dated and tired. Nothing wrong with old-fashioned, but this is this is kind of stale old-fashioned. I mean, we're talking old-fashioned. I'm, I'm just gl- looking at these wonderful... Uh, the th- playbills? These programs, the playbills. Yeah. I mean, that... Is that the standard thing that you get? I mean, pardon my ignorance, but is this the standard thing you get in the yeah, New York? Yeah, and, and guess what? They're free in New York. Not much else is free in New York. The drink, the interval drinks are $25, but but these are free in New York. You don't pay five or six pounds as you do in the West End. So, dear listener, I'm looking at these these beautiful uh, documents here, which are yeah, size of a 
what is it? Is this A5? A5 yeah, yeah, yeah. Little, well, I've been collecting them for years and years. You were talking about your floppy disk and drawers. I've yeah. got, you know, shelves full of these. And they're quite fun because they all stack up very neatly. Beautiful layout. A little masthead with Playbill, the name of the theatre underneath, and mm-hmm. wonderful typography. In this case, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, starring Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about musicals in a moment, but I don't want to leave um, Karen alone with her gelato in, in Venice. <laughs> that, that would be shocking behaviour, wouldn't it? Um, you uh, want to uh, highlight the fact, Karen, that uh, Julianne Moore has been uh, making a sparkly impression. Yes, yes, she she came. Uh, well, she's the, the the jury president, first of all. But she came to opening night wearing a fantastic Valentino outfit that I thought looked more like it for a trapeze. It was kind of a voile <laughs> with a cape. It was really glittery. Uh, you know, if you were scared of bright lights, you'd want to stay away. But she looked amazing, and it was a great opening night. And the interesting thing, this is my first uh, Venice Film Festival. Is it? It's, yeah, it's surprisingly wow. enough. I've been wanting to come for a long time and going to Cannes quite a bit. But it's just as glamorous as Cannes, but slightly more relaxed, slightly less well-organized, but a lot more almost fun. You know, there's a lot of question marks. Um, this, they have a new screen. They have a new ticket system. I know this is really boring for everybody else, but for industry and press, it's been a nightmare trying to get tickets. Oh. So any any film we get to see, we're grateful. Uh, uh, have you been grateful to see Kate Blanchett? Because I understand that she has been <laughs> absolutely setting tongues awag. It's an incredible film. Tar is an incredible film. 16 years in the making of Todd Fields. Uh, and of all of the great films here, and there are a lot of really promising, very, very good directors. So far, that has been the critical favorite. People are fighting to get tickets. It is long, but it is pacey, and it just just blew me away. What, why? What, what was it? Because, you know, for, for those of us who have not been waiting all these years for Todd Field to get his act together... <laughs> Um, you should be. You should be. <laughs> Actually, I haven't been either, really. But uh, it's it's uh, it's it's wonderful. It's it's got great scope. It's considered. It's pacey. It's well designed, and it and it says a lot about woke culture. That's one thing. It says a lot about artistry, and it's it's just a, a beautifully done film for adults. <laughs> it's it's very smart. Oh, okay, okay. I, I can see Matt nodding away here. Have you managed to catch up on it at all? Well, no, I certainly haven't seen it, but I was reading some reviews of it this morning as I was getting ready to come into town. And, and the reviews, as Karen says, I mean, they've just been ecstatic. It sounds like the Oscars are already engraved. Well-deserved, yes. But we haven't seen The Whale yet. Yes. Kalinowski with Brendan Fraser's great return. Yes. I, the, so. I, I must have missed the, the development of Brendan Fraser into, you know, the... the, 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 the <laughs> again, I, I, clearly, I'm, I'm, I'm culturally and, and been resolved in some sort of backwater for the past decade or so. But, uh, you know, Brendan Fraser, anticipated return. Those are, those are words I didn't think I'd see in the same sentence. He's much loved. He's very talented. He's had a rough ride since his great days of Encino Man. And uh, people, people love him. And he's come back with this Aronofsky movie and everybody's just wait. I haven't seen. I haven't talked to anybody who's seen it yet, but uh, I'm seeing it tomorrow. And everybody's just waiting because he's, he's, he's just a... Terrific actor. Again, Brendan Fraser and Darren Aronofsky are, are, are two names that I wouldn't necessarily... Well, I mean, when, I know I'm, I'm being unfair to him, aren't I? Because I'm no, looking no, back no, 20 no, you're, years. No, you're allowed but... to be unfair, and I think that that's, that's appropriate. But, okay, just, just think of, um, of um, O'Rourke uh, coming back with The Wrestler. You know, Aronofsky embraces these, these, these mature actors, um, even, you know, even from his early days. So he, he's great with actors, and that's what we want to see. And uh, let's let's look at uh, back back and things on stage here, Matt. Uh, uh, you wanted to highlight the 
what you call the astonishing success of Into the Woods and, and against another revival. I mean, when Sondheim died uh, yes. fairly recently, yeah, yeah. you know, people were talking about his, his, his works. And it's quite interesting that there, there was relatively few huge names that, that the, the lay person would recognize. Sure, that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm second to none in my worship of Mr. Sondheim who died last November and it was in, inevitable because he was in his 90s, but it still seemed tragic and it still does. Uh, and his appeal, I think, often seems very niche. But what's interesting about Into the Woods and this production on Broadway, it's in a huge Broadway theater, it's grossing about $2 million a week and it's become kind of a major Broadway event in a way that his shows aren't often. They're usually relegated to kind of uh, an elegant coterie and might be the snob hit of the season. It might run maybe, you know, a season and that's it. But this looks like it's breaking through to kind of Mamma Mia style success. I don't mean running 18 years, (laughs) but just in terms of having a kind of absolute mass market vibe. And the audience with whom I saw it at a Sunday matinee two weeks ago responded as if they were at a rock concert. It was kind of wild. And I, I want uh, talking about rock concerts and being kind of wild. Of course, Cameron, I have to ask you about Harry Styles and Don't Worry, Darling. <laughs> you would ask me. Yes, everybody. Uh, okay. The, another thing about this new ticketing system is that <laughs> anybody from not Daily Press cannot get into the press conferences, and all the press conferences are broadcast or layered with Italian. So if you don't speak Italian, you're out of the picture. So anyway, everybody's waiting to get into the press conference and also see Olivia Wilde's. Uh, well, her, her second feature, I think, or maybe mm. third. I think it's the um, second one, isn't it? Yeah, it is the second one. She did Book Smart, and this is Don't Worry, Darling, which is supposed to be a darkly comic um, rom-com kind of thing, thriller, who, uh, which is starring her partner, um, yeah, Harry Styles. So everybody is, is really, tongues are wagging about this one. If Tar is the hit cinematically so far of the festival, Don't Worry Darling is the one that everybody wants to get into. And you haven't got into it yet? Not yet, no, it hasn't happened yet. It'll happen on Monday. And for Monaco on Design Extra this week, we head to Toronto to tour Ace Hotel's latest outpost with architect Brigitte Shin. The site is not a big site. It's actually 75 feet square. Uh, So there are many spaces throughout the whole experience of the hotel that are both intimate and heroic at the same time, you know, because it's not, you know, a vast area that we're dealing with. So really there's almost like a compactness and a kind of uh, use of the vertical section that was really just essential to making all the program work. There's a lot of back of house spaces in a hotel that kind of have to work really well or else the whole thing doesn't work. So we were very mindful of that and really tried to make sure that that worked well. So this hotel is actually not in a normal location for a hotel. I think it's actually in a neighborhood. In a neighborhood that used to have much of the kind of light manufacturing garment district. So red brick warehouses for textiles, for all kinds of light manufacturing. And many of those buildings have actually been removed, disappeared. There's still a few left, but I feel like, you know, the whole idea of this project was to reinforce the existing fabric of this neighborhood. So when you see the exterior, it's actually red brick. It's actually very deep so that you read a certain robustness and materiality to the kind of exterior of the building. 
And then when you come inside, it's actually also all structure that's exposed. And that's combined with the use of a lot of natural materials, wood and brick, and the two together kind of create the sense of a kind of unique and special space in the city. We were talking earlier about the significance of of red brick, particularly that's on the exterior of the building. Mm So in Toronto, we have an amazing system of ravines. Uh, One ravine in particular, the Don Valley Ravine, was actually the site of a really important brickworks. They actually used the kind of local clay from literally behind the brick factory, and they used it for many decades to actually become the kind of source of the bricks that were fired in the brickwork. So in a way, uh, the kind of specificity of these found natural materials actually are then become, in effect, uh, transformed and become literally the fabric of the city. And uh, so we really wanted to uh, connect to all of that, which was we feel is really important to really create a sense of place. So this is not a generic hotel that could be anywhere. It's really a hotel embedded in this garment district neighborhood in downtown Toronto and the fact that you're not sure when you're on the outside if it's a new building or an existing building for us makes us really happy. So the fact that it's kind of a certain ambiguity is actually really kind of important because we didn't want to stand out as a building from the exterior but we also wanted to be a warm and inviting civic space on the interior so both were kind of important objectives for us. A hotel has to do a lot of things at the same time, whether you see those functions or not. Maybe you can walk us through, you know, you described how there isn't an inch of space wasted in this building, how you sort of balanced all of those functions that it has to undertake every hour of the day, pretty much. So I've always wanted to design a hotel. (laughs) And the reason is that it addresses the scale of the city, the building scale and the scale of a room. And all three scales are equally important. And in a way, we thought very carefully about all three scales. And they are interrelated. They have different roles to play. And the fact that they're kind of, they create, in effect, a rich spatial sequence between leaving the city, entering the public spaces, and then entering the private spaces, for us was just a really great opportunity. It's a very complicated uh, programmatic challenge because there's back of house, front of house, and both need to work equally well. And for us, we spent a lot of time really trying to understand how the back of house worked to, in effect, support a great front of house. So, uh, so that was actually really an interesting challenge, and we feel we really put a lot of effort into making both uh, work well together. And you mentioned there that you'd always wanted to design a hotel building. Is there something for an architect when you are tasked with building a a type for the first time? Is that a particularly sort of energizing thing where you have to sort of comb through for the first time? So we actually went to visit every Ace Hotel and uh, learned a lot. We met all the different cultural engineers and the various people that ran them. And we actually spent a lot of time equally looking at back of house as well as front of house. So it was a really great learning experience. And I feel like each typology, you know, that you end up doing, it's a whole education. And I think really exciting. I think sometimes when you don't do that type a lot, you actually can bring new things to it as well as, you know, the people that have done, I've done a hundred of those. But for us, you know, our practice is small and we don't do that kind of thing. So the fact that it was a whole new typology was really exciting and really important for us. 
We really worked at making sure that it had flexibility, but also specificity at the same time. So the walls are wood, the ceiling's concrete, like things that are not kind of normal for those kinds of spaces, but then allowing so many different things to happen, layouts of all different kinds to say, you know, a luncheon for a hundred or a, a kind of lecture for this number of people. And, and that was actually a really interesting exercise to build in that flexibility for the hotel for the long term. And maybe to talk about the lobby that we're looking over sort of here again, you talked when we first met maybe a half an hour ago about how sort of hotel lobbies have become just slightly sort of corporate maybe and, and not having a sort of maybe very deep or genuine sense of their own sort of character, which I guess is kind of funny because I guess if you're a layperson, you think of a hotel lobby, there is this romance quite often that springs to mind. This feels kind of romantic in a kind of different way. And I wonder if that was sort of intentional. And yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that happens is that the lobby feels like it's actually floating or hovering. And uh, there are little moments where you can see a kind of architecturally, uh, we're very clear about that. Uh, the fact that there's actually these uh, structural rods that where it's actually being hung from the larger concrete structure and the two are interrelated for us are really important. And it builds a sense of difference between the lower level restaurant and the upper level lobby and then again with the penthouse uh, Evangeline so that each of the spaces has really a very different character, a different experience. Here in the lobby bar, you're overlooking the local neighborhood park. You're getting great west light and north light coming in. And it also is a spot where you can drop in, have a coffee, leave. It's very fluid. And we wanted a certain lightness, a certain airiness, but also a connection to these kind of key pieces, the park and the neighborhood, which are really anchoring the whole building. And very broadly speaking, um, again, to go back to this sort of plot, this corner site in this part of Toronto, were there any sort of particular challenges to the site that, you know, posed uh, needed a bit of extra working through from a design point of view? I think corners are really important in a city. And Toronto, I think, is a great city. It has wonderful fabric buildings doesn't have great corners and great examples of how people have thought about a corner. And we spent a lot of time really thinking about how you would enter from Brant Street, how you would enter from Camden, and then the views of the corner itself. So we didn't normally, we didn't create a sausage and cut it off. We actually articulated Camden to be quite different from Brant. And we really wanted both to be inviting, but also both to maybe be a bit different because the context was different on each side of the building. And we really wanted to use that natural grade to create really large window openings that would allow people walking on the sidewalk to look into the building and people that are on the stairs or in the restaurant to actually see people on the sidewalk. This interchange and kind of visual connection for us was really important. So it's not like retail that comes right off of the street, but there again is this kind of very strong visual connection to the city. And I just think that it's almost like we're inviting the city into the building and we're creating these large portals that allow this viewing of both one way and the other. Our hope is that this building itself, this hotel, can demonstrate that that's totally possible. 
I feel like often, you know, most condominiums that are, you know, there's a lot, you can see how many cranes there are in this neighborhood. A lot of them have very puny lobbies that actually are not inviting to the public. And then they have just lots of retail that is kind of spoken for all around the edge. I would say this building takes kind of a different position than that. The discussion we had about people being able to view in and being able to look out, the kind of nature of the kind of sense of warm welcoming is kind of so key to the hotel experience. And uh, I feel like all buildings need to give back in different ways. And otherwise, you don't have a, a real city. I just think, you know, we benefit from these great urban spaces, indoor and outdoor, that become so memorable to the experience of being in cities. And I think all architects have a certain responsibility to really shape them spaces to, to feel civic. But you can't do it on your own. So it really requires a kind of enlightened clients and, uh, you know, really a bigger vision than just the actual square footage of the building. Being inside this building now, maybe an obvious question to ask, but how does it feel to sort of see all of the details as well as the sort of bigger span of the buildings and the spaces that you both worked on for yeah, so long? So it's been a long journey. We had a kind of pandemic in the middle and, uh, you know, stops and starts in the construction. It's been a, really a pleasure to work with the builders, the owners, and to kind of realize something that, frankly, none of us could have done on our, on our own. You know, when we say collaboration, you know, people talk about it a lot. I think that really, you know, A, there was a collaboration with Atelier Ace. There was a collaboration with the builders and working really closely with the owner to create something that we think has a civic feel to it. It's almost like a kind of neighborhood living room that everyone feels comfortable coming into and hopefully some kind of contribution to the city overall. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. listening to the curator here on Monaco 24 and now Christian Green investigates how Copenhagen avoided plans to pave over their city lakes to make more room for the car and ended up as one of the world's most psycho-friendly centers. It's around 8.45 on a Tuesday morning in Copenhagen and I'm standing at what's sometimes called the busiest bicycle intersection in Europe. Okay, so admittedly, the exact numbers here are contested by those in the world of comparative biking studies. Maybe it's the busiest in the world, maybe it's just the busiest in Copenhagen, but either way, it's certainly busy, with an estimated tens of thousands of bikers crossing through on any given day. This intersection is particularly busy because it's located right at a traffic choke point, 
where Queen Louisa's Bridge connects the popular neighbor of Norbro to the historic city center. It's a place where the dense neighborhood streets abruptly end and suddenly there's nothing but sky above and water below belonging to the three man-made rectangular lakes that once served as the city's outer border. My favorite thing about this intersection, and why I'm standing here now talking to you about it, is that it isn't just a busy traffic intersection. Come back to the same spot at 10am and you'll find new mothers sitting together, talking on a bench by the lakes with their children parked and sleeping in strollers. Come back again at 6 in the afternoon, you might find co-workers sat atop one of the rails, drinking beers and enjoying the afternoon sun. And if you come around midnight, you might even catch a huddle of teenagers bouncing around a speaker. The lakes and Queen Louisa's Bridge, they represent one of the things Copenhagen is most well known for. It's a place where people are prioritized. It's an important historic thoroughfare where you can also go for a run or sit in a green space and take in the open air. And it's right in the middle of the city. It's a place where bicycles have ample space and there's only a single lane of car traffic in either direction, so pedestrians have no trouble reaching and enjoying this iconic Copenhagen space. But this place is also interesting because all of this, the bike lanes, the wide open lakes, the human over cars focus, it wasn't inevitable. In fact, in this very location, Denmark almost went down a very, very different path where none of this would be as it is today. This particular story picks up just after the end of the Second World War. Even after freedom from Nazi occupation, Denmark's economy remained weak and struggled to rebound for years. Much of the growth and development that did occur was all concentrated outside of the city and nearby suburbs, and so initial investments in infrastructure were mainly focused on developing rail and motorways between suburbs and the city. And while Denmark struggled to develop much in the late 40s and early 50s, they would have looked abroad and seen that a different architectural style was growing in influence and leaving its mark on cities throughout the world. Modernism. Originating from the 1920s and 30s, and pioneered by the likes of the Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier, modernist architecture sought to use new technologies of the time to radically transform how people navigated their cities. After war efforts subsided, Newly cheap and abundant concrete could be used to build massive apartment buildings to house growing populations, and the proliferation of automobiles meant that more and more people could travel further, faster. In modernist cities, life was efficiently split into its component parts of living, working, and playing, and the geography of the city itself was split to match this. The modernist utopia envisioned cities as urban islands full of unornamented construction and connected by wide, long motorways. In some cities, large swaths of historic buildings were demolished just to make way for grids of large, rectangular buildings and wide, flat highways. While this might not sound so appealing today, at the time, many cities were eager to remake themselves in this new image, Copenhagen included. By the late 1950s, Denmark's economy was beginning to grow and with it came an ever-wealthier suburban middle class, more and more of whom were ditching those bicycles for fancy new cars. Photos of Copenhagen from this time look like a twisted mirror universe compared to walking its streets today. Stwaal, the famed walking and shopping street, was filled with traffic, while Gammeltolf, which today is a spacious and popular square reserved for pedestrians, was treated just like a cobblestone parking lot. 
The lakes at least remained a popular and beloved space for pedestrians, but Copenhagen's Lord Mayor at the time, a self-proclaimed modernist named Urban Hansen, became interested in changing that when he saw plans for something called Søringen, the lake ring. The lake ring was first proposed in 1958, and then it was approved by Parliament in 1964. The plan was simple, but massive. It proposed to build a 12-lane highway running from the northern suburbs directly into the heart of the city. From there, it would start to curve in a ring along the lakes before it met a brand new motorway interchange where it would then direct cars out to the southwest, towards the rest of Denmark, and towards mainland Europe. And to build this highway, the city would need to demolish existing housing in the north and nearly eradicate a large section of the neighborhood of Vestibolt just to make room for all those automobiles. And as for the lakes, the shoreline would need to be extended, meaning the city would need to fill them with tons of new dirt in order to make sure there was enough land to accommodate all 12 sprawling lanes. That's what Copenhagen's maybe the busiest bicycle intersection in the world almost became. And I doubt many young mothers with strollers or early morning joggers or post-work colleagues would gather along the side of a 12-lane highway to take in that diminished lake view. It would have just been a busy road with the sole purpose of connecting disjointed spaces of the city. And that would be it. Now, obviously, and luckily, this never happened. But it wasn't because officials realized this was such a horrible idea. It was something much more typical. The project was too expensive, and it progressed too slowly. Some buildings were demolished in anticipation of the road, and a few smaller six-lane highways were constructed around the city, but the project's slow pace allowed time for groups who opposed it to gain steam. Grassroots organizations started to build road barricades in protest, and Politiken, the country's largest newspaper, ran stories denouncing the plan. But the true final nail in the lake ring coffin that came in the early 70s in the form of a series of oil crises and a period of economic stagflation. Oil prices skyrocketed and automobile use plummeted. At some points in the crisis, the government even declared car-free Sundays in order to retain enough oil just for energy use. After decades of decline, bicycle usage went up for the first time, purely out of necessity. And then, on some of those car-free Sundays, Copenhageners got a taste of what it was to live in their city without automobiles clogging up those beautiful, historic squares. Eventually, that led to a groundswell of activism to pedestrianize more of the city and to shift infrastructure investments away from automobiles and toward building out an extensive network of biking lanes. At first, the government attempted, in vain, to confine bikers only to side streets so that major thoroughfares remained the domain of the car. But bikers defied. They continued to use the roads that made the most sense for them, and ultimately the city submitted, deprioritizing motorways and building out the bicycle infrastructure that serves as the basis for what we have today. I like this story because as much as I love Copenhagen, I think people look at it now and assume it was always destined to be what it is. It's a mistake we make a lot with history. People think that bicycling must somehow be genetic for Danes. They look at the lakes and think they must be this space because they always have been. But it isn't, and they haven't. We're lucky enough to have what we have today because of a mixture of weird economics, grassroots activism, and frankly, some dumb luck. It's a simple but important lesson to remember. 
because it also means just because we have something today doesn't guarantee we have it tomorrow. And of course, we like to end with a lovely recipe. This time is by the duo behind London's Moro and Morito restaurants, San and San Clark. Hello, I'm Sam of the Sam and Sam partnership from the restaurants Moro and Morito in London. Here is an easy recipe from uh, Moro Easy on your book. We the restaurant make our own yogurt but for this recipe we mix um, Greek yogurt with cream cheese about one third cream cheese to two thirds Greek yogurt and we whisk that together and then we add a little bit of salt and then separately we fry some sliced garlic in olive oil quite a liberal amount of olive oil because it's sort of the sauce we're making the sauce with it and then we, when the garlic is light brown we add whole coriander seeds and whole fennel seeds and then we continue to cook it until the aromas start to come out so uh, 30 seconds and then we add some medium chopped sun-dried tomatoes to this oil with the garlic and then we let all of the wonderful colors of the sun-dried tomato penetrate the oil and then we pour this over our version of labneh which is the strained yogurt and um, we eat it with either crudite or warm flatbread or pita bread. And it's just a wonderful part of a meze or a light lunch and is incredibly tasty and delicious textures as well. And that's it. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewess and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.